Welcome to Off Center, the podcast about digital narrative and algorithmic narrativity. My name is Scott Retberg, and I'm the director of the Center for Digital Narrative at the University of Bergen. In this podcast, I'll have conversations with the researchers at the Center, as well as other experts in the field to discuss topics revolving around digital storytelling and its impact on contemporary culture. So where do I go to find a decent story in this metaverse? Beyond the hype of Zuckerberg's fantasies, how will augmented reality affect the future of storytelling? On this episode of Off Center, I'll be talking with Caitlin Fisher, extended reality innovator and director of the Immersive Storytelling Lab at York University and professor too at the Center for Digital Narrative, about her career, storytelling experiments, and hopes for the future of narrative in AR environments. Welcome to Off Center, the podcast of the Center for Digital Narrative. Uh, I'm Scott Rutberg, the director of the center, and I'm here with Caitlin Fisher. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Uh, Caitlin, you're a uh, professor of cinema and media arts. That's right. Uh, at York University in Canada. Welcome to Bergen. I've known you for a while now. I guess yeah, pretty, far pretty back. long time, Scott. Since 2001, uh, actually, which is what twenty another university ago. Twenty some years yeah. ago. Uh, and you were the first winner of the Electronic Literature Award for Fiction. At the time that I met you, you were just wrapping up your, your PhD, as was I uh, at the same time. <laughs> and now you're a uh, renowned uh, professor of cinema and media arts, and uh, you've had a prestigious Canada chair. So you're kind of famous. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd say that, but uh, mini elit famous for sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey that you've taken, uh, both initially to get to that place where you were writing a dissertation in creative hypertext form, and what's happened since? Oh, big question. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be delighted to. I mean, this week I was sort of taking some moments to look back and wondering how I managed to get here. First off, I didn't actually do my doctoral work in a creative practice. My PhD was actually in social and political thought, and mm-hmm. I was really attracted initially. I was I was a political economist, and I was all about um, four-day work weeks and better work-life balance. And then I was introduced to hypertext, and I actually thought it was, I just thought that it was this incredible philosophy machine that it mm-hmm. concretized so many experimental practices and that it actually constituted like this huge challenge to academic writing. Um, so I was all in. And my doctoral work was initially written in story space, uh, which having chosen that software sort of introduced me to this sort of emerging community that I'd never heard of. Artists working with computer scientists and um, literary scholars. And I found it incredibly attractive. and started to to do that work. Then I exported my doctoral work from story space to HTML and it flattened out all the structure. And I was really interested in sort of responding back to the emerging elite community. My doctoral work was called Building Feminist Theory, a Hypertextual Heuristics. So I initially thought I was going to go out and find all these like emerging cool feminist hypertexts and there would be like 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And what happened was I was, it was more around, here's a new way of writing. Here's a new way of opening up the academy. And here's, and along that way, I did start to kind of 
creep in a tiny bit of creative writing in it. And if you're starting to push the form, you end up with, you know, there, there were going to be pictures, there were going to be sounds, there were going to be a few other things. Cut to the chase. By the time I'd finished my doctor work, nobody wanted to read that kind of work. You know, it's 2000. Nobody really cares. I was having like readers sort of say like, you know, could you could you print it all out? That actually happened at my defense. And I felt like I'd put so much stuff into it and I loved it. It was like this huge constellation of ideas in my head. And I kept thinking, this really is a form. Like, this is amazing. And it was like crickets. Anyway, my doctoral, I mean, I, I passed my exam. And it was actually, I think, the first born digital dissertation in Canada. It had wow. no print companion. I was actually racing through at the same time that my university was making regulations around the borders for, you know, because electronic dissertations were conceptualized, they were going to be PDFs or something. So right, I was like trying right. to get there before these new rules hit. But when I finished that, I took a long look at how... I felt like I was a magician who'd done like a 10 card lift and no one had noticed. Right. And I was like, my next piece people are going to like. So I took everything about the dissertation and it's, you know, really tricky linking structure and it's collages practices. And, you know, you had to follow across, you know, multiple reading notes. And I did everything the opposite way. And when I saw that there was a call for this electronic literature award for fiction, I thought not only had I been kind of like pushing the boundaries and hoping to do a little bit more fiction, I'd had a creative writing practice in print, but I That's never, I was I thought yeah, I never thought that it could yeah. be part of my scholarly practice. So I, I, I thought, what are, what are the rules that I've learned? I thought I'm going to have something character driven. I'm going to have a table of contents. I'm going to have something where people can understand. I, I thought about the granularity of the page differently. You know, I'm going to have things that people will like. That yeah. was basically the difference. Yeah, Something people would like. With, um, <laughs> a little bit of flash animation. Is there a yeah, there was a little early. bit of everything. But, right. you know, I felt like when I finished it, I thought... This is something that um, I'm pretty sure will land. And I mean, not that everybody's going to like it, but I was uh, I was kind of I was thrilled, but I wasn't entirely surprised when people like these waves of girls. And uh, and it really changed my life. It opened me up to being able to incorporate creative practice in the whole rest of my career. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I loved about these waves of girls, and in a way, it's probably the work of yours that I'm most uh, familiar with because I've, you know, I've taught it a few times. It, it's sort of it does come out of um, of hypertext, but it sort of also embraces the form and matches the form to the topic in this kind of like objective correlative kind of way. And I remember because um, at the time I was the we just started the electronic literature organization and I was the the first executive director. I and mean, I remember talking to Larry McCaffrey, who was the, the judge of that award. And there were several other really interesting works on the shortlist as well. And he said, well, this one is sort of like uh, this kind of reminds me of like uh, punk rock or it's sort of in postmodernism. It's sort of like, you know, this kind of Kathy Acker uh, take on on a, a memoir of a, a coming of age story of, of dis discovering sexuality and identity as a girl and as a woman and the, this kind of scrapbook quality um, to oh, it. Wow, that's so flattering. I... Well, it really it really did sort of you got that sense of when you're a teenager and you're sort of kind of coming to grips with with who you are and just sort of the kind of the messiness it wasn't kind of smooth. Yeah, that and was seamless. very much the aesthetic. And I know afterwards people were like, well, you know, it, it doesn't have these like beautiful, formal, you know, rounded aesthetics. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. It's supposed to be like some kids stuff under the bed. And it's so interesting to hear those comments and so flattering. But also I was very keen on the idea that hypertext could um, totally disrupt the developmental novel. I mean, mm -hmm. that is that scrappy quality, right? That's what hypertext does. Yeah. You miss out on these like this teleological 
psychological story where you know you know what happens because of something and um yeah i love that that the, kind of that brokenness and there's also really interesting that that you comment on that sort of interplay between coming to hypertext more or less through theory and you know and, uh, george landau who who wrote um a lot of early theoretical work on on hypertext recently uh, passed away, but I think that's also sort of the case for for a lot of people that it was sort of a this is this is really interesting. Think about how we can sort of embody postmodernism in a text, or mm-hmm. but but at the time he wasn't really writing about you know many projects that were actually there. Um, it was more about the the ideas, um, and then and then writers sort of took that. Yeah, I mean, definitely, my work was my, the early work was a response to Landau, and I think he's he was just um, such a such a huge figure and so important and just really generative. So even works like mine that were like these gentle critiques, they weren't even mm-hmm. critiques; they were pushing back. It was yeah. kind of like, where is Rachel Blau Duplessis? Where is Zora Neale Hurston? But really, really important. But I also think it just went deeper than that. I think kind of coming from social and political thought. It was sort of, you know, does this concretize the postmodern, does it? But it was also like right back to like the Frankfurt School. It was Adorno. I, you know, I've talked a lot about like, the, you know, what does it mean to have this constellation and Adorno saying like you can't open the concept with a single key. It's like opened from like all these areas. And, you know, every time I looked, I mean, you always, you know, kind of see what you're looking for, but it just seemed so rich theoretically from so many angles. So it mm-hmm. wasn't just postmodernity. And I still think this, I think, I still think this is why I'm excited, even by Link Note Hypertext. My, my work right. has moved on, but I do think there's something uh, fundamentally there around this is how we think. These are building blocks for how we communicate. These are these very cool story making machines. And even though I've gone on and I've done a lot of work in immersive storytelling in different labs and computer vision and virtual reality, you know, I still have the dream of a huge immersive link note hypertext because I think that's where yeah. data visualization meets proprioception, meets the body. When you can pull out this constellation, like thinking about it as a Dorno, you're walking in a book. So it's not even just fiction. You know, I've been in those kinds of environments from like, this is the same kind of knowledge that I could be getting from reading a 200-page book because I'm getting the relationships. Well, no, and it's interesting, too, just thinking about the the kind of history of uh, electronic literature genres, that there was this kind of moment of the hypertext novel, maybe before people figured out that the novel and hypertext are sort of uh, very different entities in terms of the, the both the cultural baggage around them, but maybe even the, the way that attention is paid in the sort of traditional immersive novel uh, versus the kind of fragmented approach of hypertext. But I sort of still miss that. Bobby Arellano's here in Bergen. I remember discovering Sunshine 69 and being like, wow, this is really all the different ways that we can take to to structuring a story or sort oh, yeah. of... Yeah, well, remember too, I mean, basically HTML ruined hypertext. Yeah. I mean, it, it also made it entirely liberated. <laughs> yeah, and it liberated it. So, I mean, even just going back to like me and my first experiments, you know, story space could do stuff that that HTML couldn't do. But ultimately, I had to distribute it and I wanted people to read it. Right. And at that time, story space was also proprietary. So it cost money. So in order to distribute it. But I but even in that translation, I remember just how much I lost and even just, you know, being able to work with guard fields, being able to work with. Yeah. And so sometimes when technology democratizes the experimental like what you could really do in terms of pushing writing is lost a bit and I feel this is also the same in augmented reality you know I'm still waiting for like the optical see-through headsets to come back because I think that is where the story is but it was amazing to have computer vision based augmented reality that came on your phones but it made every story a magic looking glass it made everybody you know everybody holding up a device was you know 
it mediated stories in a particular way, and it and it made you make certain kinds of stories. So let's so. go to that. You, so you go from uh, from the hypertext, um, and kind of pretty quickly you start to explore with uh, with newer technologies, right? Yeah. Well, and and part of it, honestly, is the great good fortune of having these waves of girls win that award mm -hmm. because it made my work that had been formally kind of like. This is so weird and marginal, and we have no idea what's going on. All of a sudden, there was like, you know, it's not the way things should work, but it's the way things mostly work, where there was a stamp of approval, and people started to look at the work differently. And it mattered then. It pushed it from being weird to being like pioneering work. So right when I graduated, I actually had a number of interviews, and I was fortunate enough to be interviewed in the States at a time when the Canada Research Chairs Program was starting up in Canada to keep people in Canada. So it kind of was this perfect collision of all of a sudden, somebody said this would be maybe worth um, looking at more closely, and it resulted in a number of opportunities for me. And one of those opportunities um, alongside the Canada Research Chair was access to infrastructure, mm. which is you can imagine somebody who is trained largely in you know, social and political thought. I had no idea what it would be like to run a lab. And it's uh, it's been just this kind of funny thing that my entire career, I've generally, I moved from working in a solitary practice to working in physical spaces, generally yeah. in teams, working collaboratively. So it really, you know. Yeah, and I just want to read the list because you're the director of the Immersive Storytelling Lab at York University, the Augmented Reality Lab, and the founding director of the Future Cinema Lab. So uh, that's a lot of labs. It's a lot of labs. <laughs> Can you say just a little bit about what all those things are and, and how you juggle it all? Yeah. So the first lab was actually the augmented reality lab. And that was originally, so I was thinking I'd been, I'd done this hypertext, uh, I called it a hypertext novella, but I'd been thinking about sort of screen-based hypertext. And when I was imagining a research project for, um, for this Canada research chair and what I, what I might pitch, it was actually my colleague, Janine Marcheseau had been down at Georgia Tech um, and heard a talk by, by uh, Jay Bolter talking about augmented reality and she came mm. she came back and so I actually I, I, I owe her a drink uh, I came back to me and said you know you might be interested in this and my brain just spun because I thought what happens when you go from the flat screen and then you have to write in space and uh, it was it was just this incredible challenge so I went down to Georgia Tech and incredible generosity there with uh, Blair McIntyre and Jay Bolter and my first proposal was largely a twin of their set up with the Intersense Tracker. Huh. With the first budget I wrote, I mean, I couldn't have done this without the intellectual generosity of people who'd, who'd done this before. And also, I didn't have a certainty that I had enough of a team. I'd never built a team. Right. Um, so it was kind of like, I wonder if something breaks, maybe Blair McIntyre will take my call. He's probably forgotten all about this. Mm -hmm. If he hears this podcast, he might be appalled. In the end, I didn't have to to do that. But it was it was a really wonderful working relationship. And it started me to think about, so, so the first lab I built was actually a really good one uh, because I had access to this expertise then I didn't even really know what I what I needed I was like why don't I have a sound person as soon as I stood in an empty room with this huge tracking system and everything was so expensive mm -hmm. and I'd hired you know I, I had like military grade optical see-through like I think my and my uh, my Envis headset was like you know over like a hundred thousand dollars US and it had uh, you know a field of vision of about 20 percent and you had to like carry it around with this wow. huge cable it was so exciting and thinking about what future forms you could make. And the absence of, I was like, I should know more theater. I should know more circus. So it started 
it it just became this um, this massive research project because it was so fascinating. All the things I knew, all the things I didn't know, the translatable skills, um, what it would mean to have a critical mass of artists come into a space like this. And in that sense, I was really inspired by like the Brown Cave and uh, the work that had been done there and getting artists in. And um, um, I went down and I had my first visiting professor uh, moment was at Brown, uh, invited by Robert Coover. And I, I, I thought about that a lot. What does it mean to have these big sort of scientific infrastructures and have it filled with poets? And so a lot of my trajectory was on building easy access tools. What would it mean to to make it just easier for people to um, not have to go through so many intermediaries to get work back? So that was a lot of trajectory and, and just making weird small things. And then for any listeners who work in a university, you know that you get the money, and by the time the thing is built, your research project sometimes moves on a little bit. Yeah, so it was a good eighteen months, and in that eighteen months of going to, you know, this going to have this basically a room, sort of like a small gym set up with an intersense tracker and everything perfectly immersive and all, you know, everything super expensive. But in the eighteen months, I still had to move forward my work, and that's when I started to work with uh, computer vision based mm-hmm. augmented reality. So it was cheap, paper based, and that started like a whole other trajectory so like of making books. yeah small print based works, little, you know, kind of equivalent of QR codes, you know, placed on things. We all joked about having like little tattoos, haunted objects. And I still continue that, the translation of like these poems you can walk through versus things you can hold in your hand. When my lab was still very active in in, um, in AR, but we had an opportunity, a group of us in the um, Department of Cinema and Media Arts, then the film department, to think about getting more funding that could that could actually sustain more people. And it was kind of a conceit to say future cinema lab. If I hadn't been so junior, I wouldn't be so naive to like in a film department to Mm -hmm. come in and say, now we're future. (laughs) Um, But it, it wasn't really meant like that. It was supposed to be that people would know that that it would be fundable, that people would know instantly what you were trying to do. So we, we had another large pot of money for that. And uh, the tagline was new stories for new screens, something that was really quite resonant with the AR lab, just, right. just separate from it. It became more of an umbrella structure. And it was also very helpful because there were three of us. It was Janine Marcheseau, filmmaker John Grayson, and myself. So we were able to get, you know, sort of more students and more people involved, but the AR lab was still going. And then the immersive storytelling lab sort of fits organically in that structure. It's funding for a new project, so it's largely focused sort of not just on XR and not just on film right. technologies, but in different kinds of practices. We do a little bit of everything, but uh, yeah, just the work keeps growing, but the teams keep growing as well. And I feel like they're always complementing each other. And That's great. I was just thinking when you mentioned um, one of your first visits uh, as a researcher being to, uh, to Brown to look at the uh, the work that they were doing in the cave there. That was actually one of Jill and my one of our first dates was <laughs> was we we met at Brown to interview uh, Coover and, and Noah and oh. uh, and Damien. We should go back to those old places and do like a <laughs> if these walls could talk. Yeah. So one of the things I'd say is that you're one of the more positive uh, people that I know um, in terms of idea generation, and uh, I think it, that has a lot to do with how your work has traversed so many different media and genres over the years you're sort of a a yes and kind of person, right? And that leads to a lot of collaboration. Can you say something about that, just about how collaboration 
has enabled uh, some of the work that you create and sort of driven you into different pathways. Oh, that's really nice of you to say that, Scott. And I'm very glad to be thought of as, as, as a positive person. And mostly, yeah, I'm, I'm just super curious. And I've, I've always felt that, yeah, I do. I'll always say yes rather than no, unless mm-hmm. there's an extremely good idea. I think mostly I just am really curiosity driven. And almost every person I sit down with, almost every other research project has some point of intersection with something that either I feel I know or could offer or that I really want to know. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I guess that's really the privilege of being in a research lab like mine and also in the public sector rather than the private, where I don't have to be focused always on getting, you know, a certain product like out to market. I have the ability to shift things, to learn new things. I also think that's my responsibility. You mm-hmm. get a lot of public money in, public good out. And yeah. um, sometimes my collaborations are really basic. They're just simply, I can put my my infrastructure at the service of ideas. But the most exciting things, and I think the things that keep my work fresh, or at least that keep my brain working, mm-hmm. are that I do try to think of other people's work as a challenge to my own and as offering new pathways to think about things differently. Um, Maybe a couple of, of examples of this. I just uh, some of your, your recent work has dealt with things like vaccine refusal or microbial resistance. Yeah. Um, these sort of really public health science driven projects. Has that sort of been kind of an easy fit for you or what, what have you sort of discovered out of creating these these projects in tandem with things like uh, public health research teams? Yeah. One of the things that I love about all of those multi-year projects that I've been involved with that haven't been about the literary or about AR or about technology, they have been in the company of people also incredibly invested in making things work and finding mm-hmm. things that are fresh. So I was part of a multi-year project on vaccine hesitancy, um, spearheaded by uh, Natalie Loveless and Stephen Hoffman. And Natalie's an amazing, she's probably in Canada, our, our most important thinker around research creation or you know art-based research, did her PhD Santa Cruz with Donna Haraway, super Mm -hmm. interesting, and an amazing curator of people. So the people she brought together, I think, weren't initially all attracted by the idea of studying vaccine hesitancy. We were all interested and attracted by the idea of a central research question is, how could scientists and vaccinologists and artists and policymakers work together to create world-changing things, exhibitions, um, publications. And so that was a central driver. And I think if you have something like that where you can see yourself in it, if I was just approached and said, like, you know, do you want to study vaccines? Uh, I wouldn't be Mm -hmm. so naive as to think, like, if I think if you can't feel that you have something really to give, then it's very difficult. But in this case, it felt like everybody is on, I think the projects I like best, everybody is on some kind of adventure. Everybody is having to have give and take. Everybody's hoping to become a little bit different at the end of it. And uh, yeah, so that was amazing. We did incredible data-driven projects. I worked with uh, my doctoral student, uh, Alison Humphrey, had a brilliant idea that around uh, sort of a near future fiction, science fiction framework of a disease that wasn't here yet uh, right. called shadow pox. And it was also, though, based This was in, right before the pandemic. Before yeah. the pandemic, yeah. yeah. And uh, and uh, Stephen Hoffman, who's like, you know, probably, probably the world's most cited researcher in AMR um, policy discussions and I think led, you know, Canada's like, COVID response. I mean, he's amazing. Uh, provided data that I think we roughly put placed, uh, I think it was roughly uh, built on um, uh, smallpox. Anyway, it, w- it was just really interesting to look at different practices and also 
that I was interested in looking at data-driven work and interested in thinking about how what I knew about digital narrative, um, storytelling, uh, the kinds of things that I could bring could actually advance these discussions and be really cool. So for that one, we did sort of like a full body, I think Allison calls it a video game. It was um, anyway, an immersive exhibition where you could decide whether you were going to be vaccinated or not vaccinated and uh, decide on uh, vaccine penetration. You could choose your country. And it was just very interesting to think about that kind of interactivity to advance that conversation. Well, and this maybe gets in some ways to what are the poetics of VR, of AR, XR, that are specific to it, and what kinds of affordances or efficacy do these technologies enable? I, I guess I'm just thinking of this, why why would we do a project about vaccine hesitancy? Let's say we could do a brochure and, and put it out and, you know, this hundreds of thousands on the street. But what's it in particular about doing it uh, in this kind of immersive embodied environment that you think enhances it in a way that just picking up a brochure and reading about the vaccine? I think for some audiences, maybe it doesn't enhance it. I mean, I never go in assuming that everything has to be, you know, because I like XR, it's all going to be always better for all people. But I do think that new kinds of literacies demand different ways of reaching out. And I also think that there are some things like uh, I've got this new program funded through Shirk with Stephen Hoffman to create a, a VR museum looking at antimicrobial resistance. And I think one of the issues, especially around sort of an existential threat like AMR, is that it's very tricky for people to mostly see themselves inside that story. And I think if you can build stories where people understand what is at stake for them, you can move the needle. I'm not convinced that XR is necessarily better. I think you know there are always going to be multiple communication channels. But I do think that there are some things that are just very cool. I think distributed narratives could be really interesting. At one point, I really wanted to work with Niantic and to like mm-hmm. you know have it like a Pokemon Go like where where in the world I also love the idea of playing things at scale I mean technologies have always been about making the invisible visible like what would it be like maybe we need to make these things huge and threatening then the public health people tell me like not to scare people but it, you know my approach is generally I make a whole lot of prototypes I make yeah. a whole lot of things we test a whole lot of things out I think you know virtual reality because of sort of the price point of some of these devices coming down and new distribution channels that's part of why I think of doing a lot of work on something like, say, The Quest. I do, when you're thinking about the poetics and the things that really catch me, this is where I go back to like 20 years ago to starting the AR lab. And I think we're finally coming back to a point where what I've been always really interested in, I think the poetics of AR are so fascinating and that the physical world and the digital world are co-constitutive of the meaning. I mean, it's, you know, if you come at it like a filmmaker, it's like the entire physical world is like your film set. You can set these things up anywhere. My big question question is really why we don't have a critical mass of way cooler works. And I really think like in the next, like the authoring tools are changing. And that if we do end up with optical see-through head-mounted displays at a price point people can get, I'm still thinking people might be as excited as I am about it. And I think there's something incredibly, and a lot of the early hypertext theory, I think, feeds into this. I think to make cool products, there's so many ideas that were generated in those early days of hypertext theory around granularity, around how things are linked. When people are walking through space, whether it's a field or a graveyard or museum, they're still going through a node and rereading and coming back to it and your change for having been there. Um, You know, even when I'm authoring in these kind of more high-tech environments, a lot of what I've learned on that flat screen and with those early thinkers imagining how you piece 
together a story in a way that is not just linear. I think all of that still translates. Yeah, and I guess it still sort of goes back to that uh, idea of spatial storytelling that uh, people like uh, J. David Bolter were writing about, uh, referring at the time maybe to the to the page, but now we're, we're thinking about actually moving through visual fields and moving through physical environments. I think one of the reasons why I, I don't love um, like phone-based augmented reality, it's been so instrumentalized now, I think very rarely, like in the early days of the lab, especially when we would just have, you know, basically headsets on, and then you hold something in your hand and it comes alive. And there is this incredible moment of just awe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is like a little magic thing. And I, yeah. and I really think that, you know, part of it is, I think there's the grammar and poetics of working spatially, of working to have the digital complement or to work to press back against the digital. But you also can kind of I think there's still time to sort of leverage people, you know, kind of the cinema of attractions. Like, I think there's still things that can make even grown ups go like, wow. Yeah, and I yeah. think, you know, most of most of what I sort of aim for is something a tiny bit more magical that is less like putting sticky notes all over the world to direct me to do things or to give me guidance, but to make the world just stranger and more interesting and this crazy palimpsest. And one of the things that can happen in long form AR, it can be spread out over not only a large physical area, but also it could be durational. You know, we could have targeted, you know, movies that are built just for us that we can inhabit and like anything like that you have to have really strong storytelling skills and this is where you get back uh, to something basic i was just going to uh come back to uh well this this kind of cultural moment where there was massive massive investment in uh, the metaverse as zuckerberg called it it did seem like and during the pandemic you saw a lot of adoption of, of headsets and people starting to use them and then kind of in like the last 10 minutes or so (laughs) right ai's uh exploded And a lot of these investments that Facebook was making and that a bunch of different uh, headset makers were making and maybe even what Apple was uh, making into uh, XR are sort of fading, right? The rhetoric of the metaverse uh, is gone, essentially. So what just in terms of thinking about the practices that, that you engage in, do you think this is a reduction or do you think it offers any kinds of new opportunities or Yeah. I first of all I don't think it's gone. I, I think I think there are always terrible overhyped bits. Yeah. And um and I think, you know, just even the fact that Zuckerberg is the head of it, there's a, right. a certain but I mean this might be unpopular on the C D N podcast, but I, I mean I feel fundamentally those of us working now, these are always intermediate forms. I still feel like I'm like, you know, it's two thousand and four and I've got like my, you know, my headset with my field of vision at twenty percent and somebody having to carry all my cables and I'm making stories for a time in the near future. Right. Uh, and I've always thought that, and I still think that now. The coming of investment in AI does not disrupt the central dreams of what an immersive, collaborative, networked, and social space will be. And, you know, I've I worked a lot collaboratively with, I think he's like a total genius, Steve Mann, largely considered to be the founder of wearable computing. That's a long-term vision around, of course we don't want heavy, awful, disrupting things on our heads all the time. And we are like human people who don't want to look like idiots. You know, these are not things, but you I don't think you can judge the dream of what it means to be 
connected and to be able to do a lot of the things that the metaverse aims to do on that basis. So I think you might have the discourse going underground, but actually artificial or humanistic intelligence dovetailed with an idea that you and I, I mean, even at a baseline, there are things I still want to make in the metaverse that I haven't. There's no reason why I can't have my headset on and actually, you can do this right now. I just haven't done it. Um, there, are, there are a lot of like design prototypes that are like this, where like I would build a vase and I would send it to you and you would get it and you would like refine it. And then you'd send it back to me and we could create a magical object together and then either 3D print it or not. If you think about that from a literary perspective, I mean, that's the basis. I can send the secret message. You can send stuff. If we think about this not as you can't you separate it apart from being like in the moment of late capitalism, and I'm totally getting yeah. why people hate the idea of the metaverse. But AI only adds to what can actually happen there. Well, when it, you and I are, are like not having to be in particular space and can real time collaboratively make stuff together. I mean, that's another thing that I've been really interested in. Tools like um, Multibrush. I've been working a lot with like artists inside these spaces and the vulnerability of making together and talking together. I think these things are not nothing. Yeah, and I was going to say it's so important that artists are in these spaces just because I think of like demos I've seen of, you know, cutting edge XR applications, headset based VR applications and they're, you know, oh, look, you can create a virtual keyboard and you can type or, oh, you can have like eight different windows. This can be your new desktop. But remember, most people want to be, most people want to instrumentalize everything and it's just going to be how can we make the worst elements of our work lives, you know, heighten them. And now they're like also virtual. That is not an argument against the fact that a lot of this at at, at root is like incredibly cool. And I would yeah. love, I mean, and a lot of my career is focused on this. I would love to get these tools into the hands of, um, of weirder people, of cooler yeah. people, of people who know story, of people who are interested in thinking about how these tools can make our lives more full of joy than full of keyboards. Yeah. Well, I hope we'll, hope we'll be doing some of that, uh, in our research together, uh, with you as a uh, professor too, with the, the Center for Digital Narrative. Maybe one thing just to, to kind of come back to uh, a general idea of of what we do and why we do it. I've always thought of electronic literature as being a, an experimental field or in the literature that we make as uh, being experimental literature. And I'm, I'm all for that. I'm not going to, you know, apologize for that. Uh, but sometimes the experimentation might seem like novelty for the sake of novelty. But in other works, you get a sense that people are really pushing to get at those particular poetic affordances of a new technology and then avoiding them in ways that add sort of new layers of meaning, of making the, the environment particular to the type of story that you want to tell. So if, just to come back to that, if you had to say one thing that you think VR, AR brings to the table for narrative that you don't get from the written word on its own, what would that one thing be? I think... Yeah, I I think it has to do something about being transported to the center of the story. And I don't think that you always have to have that as the as the only point of view, but I do think there there's something incredibly powerful about inhabiting a story that the combination of content and proprioception and having to activate is 
and and I'm not even a giant proponent that says I think some people will always be incredibly immersed in a novel and would never want that. But I know that for me, putting on those headsets for the first time, and I think this is also where I come back to expressive tools. I think also being able to change that environment when you're in there. There's something very visually powerful in this moment of something where you are just walking, you you're you're just maybe seeing like a 360 video, and you're like transported to the middle of some place you've mm -hmm. never been. I think that that's powerful and it's also it works because I think the technology is there to make that really seamless and possible. But I think the real power is actually going to be in these environments where you know you when you walk through and can see your footsteps or something along the line, something that takes the affordances of something like multibrush where it turns being in those spaces into some kind of expressive tool. The first time that I saw my hand like drawing in a VR space and creating a small sculpture and shrinking it down and then bringing it up and inhabiting it. Anyway, it, it was really awe-inspiring and it really changed the way I worked. One of the things that can happen in these spaces is you can defy the laws of physics. You know, I, I think it was- it's Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, what attracts me most to this moment, I think, is that I really took this to heart when I'm having visited that lab with Jay bolter around that this is really like film at the turn of the last century mm -hmm. and I think if you play it right one of the things that's most interesting is that because there are no rules there'll be a lot of terrible things there'll be things that break there'll be things but there'll be things that just hit and I think in terms of stories I don't know yet what we need to leverage to have stories that will equal and exceed the power of an incredibly well-written novel I think we're still at this kind of tinkering thing, which is yeah. why I, do, I hate it when people close it down and try to make it like really small or about wayfinding or about commerce, because I think it really is about where the human imagination lands, um, co-creating with computers in this infinite canvas that you can walk through. I think we've got a huge responsibility to make cooler things. So that's really a meandering question, because I think I, I don't really know yet, but I but if you come back to being like the Is optimist, an I think there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we do. Well, I've been talking uh, with Caitlin Fisher, the director of the Immersive Storytelling Lab, and we're going to be working together, making new things uh, over the next several years with the uh, Extending Digital Narrative project and at the uh, Center for Digital Narrative. So I'm going to look forward to, uh, to seeing you back here in, in Bergen uh, very soon. And thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you, Scott. And I'm really excited and honored to be a part of these projects. Cheers. If we can write computer programs that generate poetry, why not make some that can generate films? On the next episode of Off Center, I'll be talking with Roderick Coover, a filmmaker, digital artist, and professor of film and media arts at Temple University, about his career and about our collaborative work together in producing works of combinatory cinema, computer programs that produce different versions of a film every time they run. Make sure to follow us on social media by searching your favorite network for the Center for Digital Narrative to keep up to date with our next episodes. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Off Center is produced by Jesse Von Balcom with the assistance of the design skills of Valeria Antizana Acosta. And we want to thank the Norwegian Research Council's Centers of Research Excellence Program and the University of Bergen for their support. For those of you located in the Bergen area, we invite you to the Introducing the Center for Digital Narrative Exhibition. 
In this exhibition, you'll hear from researchers and practitioners who are working at the cutting edge of digital narrative. You'll also learn about the research and methods behind these projects and how they address various cultural and social and aesthetic issues. You'll have the chance to experience different forms of digital narrative, such as digital poetry and large-scale projections. The exhibition will showcase several historical and contemporary digital narrative projects from the last 20 years and will include an exhibit of books about digital narrative produced by authors in the center, as well as an exhibition of books produced in collaboration with AI and other computational narrative systems. I hope that you'll visit the exhibition while it's still up. The exhibition is open during regular library hours. The exhibition is open to the public from now until January 5th, 2024.